Coming up, a message from the pulpit of Bethel Primitive Baptist Church in Calabash, North Carolina, by Elder Michael Goins. For information about Bethel Church, please visit our website at BethelPBC.us. Let's read from Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. God, who at sundry times and in divers manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. The introduction to a letter in the Bible is often a kind of summary or a microcosm of the main theme of the letter. It sets the pace, if you please, in big picture terms that will be spelled out in details to follow. And from this passage, I think we can say that the theme of Hebrews is that Jesus Christ is God's answer to our need for a mediator. You'll notice that the word mediator is not in the passage that I read, but I suggest that's really the theme here, that God has positioned Jesus Christ as the mediator that we need. Now, perhaps you say, well, what is a mediator, Brother Goins? And we're all familiar with a median. If you've driven down the road, and you see the grassy or the concrete part between the northbound and the southbound lanes, that's called the median or that which is in the middle. And a mediator comes from the same root word, and it means to stand in the middle, a middleman, someone, if you please, who stands in the gap, a go-between. A mediator stands between two parties, lays his hand upon them both, and brings about harmony and reconciliation. Job's word for it in Job 9.33 was a daysman. You remember when Job was having his trouble and his friends were accusing him of committing some sin, Job says, I wish that there was a daysman between me and God so that I could appeal my case to him. I don't believe I can appeal directly to God, but if I had a daysman who might lay his hand upon us both. And a mediator is a daysman, a middleman, a go-between. The idea is that of a bridge which spans a gulf. I dare say that Jesus Christ is the bridge between man and God. You say, well, Brother Goins, is, is there a gap? Is there a gulf between us and God? And the answer to that is absolutely, for God is holy and we are not. The greatest gulf in the world is the gulf between sinful men and a holy God. And you see, we can't just approach God on our own, and God has provided a mediator. Now, I think this concept is important to get in our minds because we're going to develop, the Lord willing, in just a moment, how Jesus Christ is the one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. You see, Jesus lays his hand upon us both. He can properly represent God to men because he is God. And he can properly represent man to God because he's man, a very man. So Jesus is the middleman. He's the one who stands in the gap. Now God has built this idea of the need for a mediator into the fabric of Jewish life and worship in the Old Testament. God did not interact directly 
with the people of Israel, but he established three mediatorial offices, people who would go in the middle, in between him and the people, and through whom he could communicate with the people and the people could approach him in worship. The prophet, the priest, and the king. In theological terms, these three offices are known as the munis triplex, and numerous people filled these roles and functioned in these capacities through the Old Testament. Prophets like Moses, who spoke for God to the people, Samuel the prophet, and Jeremiah, and many, many more. Priests like Aaron and Eliezer, and then the kings, David and Solomon and Hezekiah and others. So you have these three mediators, these three go-betweens, offices, if you please. And it was through the prophet that God spoke to the people. It was through the priest that the people approached God to worship him. You see how the direction of the priest was, he, he represented the people to God. The prophet represented God to the people. The prophet spoke for God. Thus saith the Lord. He brought God's message to bear. And I suggest the theme of the book of Hebrews is that Jesus Christ executes these three mediatorial offices in connection to his covenant role as the mediator. Jesus Christ is our prophet. He's our priest. He's our king. Jesus Christ fulfills the Old Testament in this sense. All three roles he fulfills simultaneously in himself. Now, by the way, you never had an overlap in the Old Testament. You remember when King Saul decided that he was going to make an offering, a sacrifice of the sheep and the oxen that he had taken from the Amalekites. And Samuel shows up and he says, you have done very foolishly. It's not your business to offer sacrifices. That's the priest's role. Saul, you're the king. And just because you're the king doesn't mean that you can be the religious leader as well. The king was the political leader. The priest was the religious leader, right? The prophet was the spokesman for God. And you didn't have anybody in the Old Testament who was both a king and a priest except for one man. Genesis chapter 14 speaks of a strange, mysterious figure named Melchizedek, who was both king of Salem and priest of the Most High God. He was a king and a priest at the same time. The only person. And interestingly, in the seventh chapter of Hebrews, the Apostle Paul is going to develop the fact that the priesthood of Jesus Christ is in the order of Melchizedek, not in the order of Aaron or Levi. This strange figure is going to resurface in the New Testament in the book of Hebrews. Now this is a very difficult and profound book. And because it is so mysterious, it's probably not on most people's list of favorite New Testament books. If we were to take a survey of 100 people this morning and say, what is your favorite book in the New Testament? I'm sure a number of people would say the Gospel of John it would probably get a number of votes. Others would say the book of Philippians. Oh, that's the epistle of joy. I sure like Philippians, somebody says. The more doctrinally or theologically minded would probably say the book of Romans. People who like prophecy would probably say the book of Revelation. That's my favorite. But I wonder how many people would actually say the book of Hebrews is one of my top books. Most people, when they come to the book of Hebrews, because we're so geared to say, what can it do for me? That subjective focus that we talked about last week. And by the way, that should never be number one on our list. You know, somebody says, it just doesn't do anything for me. Well, it's supposed to 
honor God and worship God. You know, we're here first and foremost to exalt Him, to focus on Him, to remember what He's done and to praise and worship Him, right? Not just to get something for ourselves. We're not using God as a means to an end for our own happiness. We exist to worship God, to glorify Him. And if you're never happy or I'm never happy, still, my friends, if God is glorified in my life, then my life is worthwhile. And it's been a fulfilling life. But at the same time, somebody says, Hebrews just doesn't do anything for me, Brother Mike. It's too technical. It's too Old Testament. I'll tell you, though, four reasons that we should study Hebrews. Number one, it reveals Christ as the key to interpreting the Old Testament. Have you ever read the Old Testament and thought, what does it all mean? If you view the Old Testament through the lens of Jesus Christ and Him crucified, it makes it all come to life. It makes it make sense. The book of Hebrews, in other words, gives us understanding of our Bibles. You want to understand your Bible? Read Hebrews. It will tie it all together. Hebrews reveals Christ as the key to interpreting the Old Testament. Secondly, Hebrews displays the greatness and glory of Jesus Christ. It pictures him in his exalted glory, and therefore it promotes worship. I know of nothing that will drive us to our knees more quickly than to see Jesus Christ high and lifted up. Hebrews will do that. Hebrews number three emphasizes the importance of the humanity of Christ. In other words, it provides encouragement to those of us who are living here in the flesh in the midst of all the troubles and trials of life. It will give you understanding. It will promote worship. Hebrews will provide encouragement. And finally, number four, this book stresses the importance of persevering in times of adversity, keeping on, keeping on. Have you ever gone through any times of adversity in your life? I have, and I know the answer in your case is absolutely, I have too. Hebrews, in other words, will strengthen your faith. So what can it do for you? It may not be light and airy and superficial and fluffy and make you feel good like a beautiful painting or a lovely song, but yet Hebrews is solid meat. And if you need a little meat from time to time, here's a good place to go to get it. I like cotton candy. And I like sugar babies. Well, I could just go down the list. I like Captain Crunch and Lucky Charms and all of those things. But I'll tell you, dear friends, every once in a while, I need a good steak and potato. Don't you? I need a little meat. The protein builds muscle. It gives strength. It, it's important for my nutrition. And may I say, spiritually speaking, we can preach sermons on sharing, caring, and being a good neighbor. And that's legitimate. We need to learn those things. We can read guideposts and Reader's Digest convinced version of Christianity. But periodically, we need to, dare I say it, grow up and eat a little meat. Get away from the pablum and the milk. And interestingly, Paul even uses that imagery in the fifth chapter of Hebrews when he says, I've fed you with milk and not with meat, for hitherto you were not able to bear it. Strong meat belongeth to them that are of full age. So, my beloved, this is big people, grown-up Christian kind of fair, the book of Hebrews. But I dare say it'll make you strong in your faith. It'll exalt Christ. It'll give you understanding of your Bible. And it will give you encouragement to know that because Jesus was a man, in heaven he can be touched with the feeling of your infirmities right now as you go through the problems and afflictions of life. Jesus is our prophet, our priest, and our king. The theme of Hebrews is that Jesus executes these three offices in connection to his role as mediator 
And somebody says, now, preacher, I didn't see any mention of the three offices that you've specified, prophet, priest, and king, in the introductory passage that you've read this morning. Where does it say he's a prophet? Where does it say he's a priest? Where does it say he's a king? It doesn't say it explicitly, but it does implicitly in these expressions. Would you listen? Jesus is a prophet. Where do you get that, Brother Mike? Verse 2, God hath in these last days spoken to us by his Son. Verse 3, when he had by himself purged our sins, he's our priest. For it's a priest that purged or that offered sacrifices for the purification of sins. Jesus is the sin purifier. He purged our sins. That's a reference to his office as priest. Or does it say he's a king? It doesn't say it specifically, but it does in this expression. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. As our prophet, God spoke to us by his son. As our priest, he purged our sins by himself. And as our king, he is now seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. Let's develop these three thoughts this morning to some degree. First of all, God has spoken by his son. I like that thought. God is a God who talks. God has spoken. God has communicated to us. Now, how do you get to know somebody? By talking, right? Relationships are based on communication. You ever been around somebody that just was very shy or an introvert and they didn't talk very much and you thought, I just wish he would say something so that I could get to know him. You know, I want to know how his mind works. I want to learn how he thinks. I dare say that the God of the universe has a mouth and he speaks. You know, the idols have mouths, but they speak not. Our God has communicated to man. In fact, in the first chapter of the Bible, we learn, and God said, let there be light. God comes on the scene in human history, if you please. He arrives on the scene as a communicating God. God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God said, let the earth bring forth let the waters bring forth, and over and over, God is a God who speaks. And throughout the Old Testament, God has spoken. Now, the doctrine that is under consideration in this thought, that God has spoken, is the doctrine known as Revelation, the doctrine of Revelation. And Revelation is a very humbling doctrine. Do you know what it means? It means that you nor I could ever discover God on our own. Had he not been pleased to disclose himself, to reveal himself, you could have never found God. There's a verse in Job 11, verse 7, the words of Zophar the Naamathite that says, Canst thou by searching find out God? You answer the question. If you say, okay, I'm going to start digging in the earth, I'm going to start investigating, I'm going to the library to check out books and try to discover God on my own. Canst thou by searching find out God? Canst thou find out the Almighty to perfection? In other words, can you learn so much so that you are an expert? Will you ever become an expert, a scholar? Will you ever graduate from the school of Christ with your cap and gown? No, my friends. For he says, uh, it is as high as heaven, what canst thou no, deeper than hell, what canst thou do? It is longer than the earth and broader than the sea. In other words, you search up, down, all around, and you'll never discover God on your own unless he's pleased to reveal himself to you. The doctrine of revelation. And the fact is, as the late John R.W. Stott said, if God had not been pleased to reveal himself to men, we would all be Athenians instead of Christians. And all the world's altars would be inscribed with the words to the unknown God. 
We wouldn't know God had he not been pleased to reveal himself. Now you say, Brother Goins, where has God revealed himself? In two places. There are two Bibles, nature's Bible and scripture's Bible. In other words, God has preached his sermon in nature and he's preached his sermon in Holy Scripture. And you see these two thoughts in Psalm 19. The first six verses has to do with nature's sermon. Listen to this. The heavens, he says, declare the glory of God. The firmament showeth his handiwork. Day unto day uttereth speech. Night unto night showeth knowledge. There's no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. In other words, whether people speak Hungarian or Portuguese or Mandarin, or Swahili, or English, or French, or German. There's no speech or language. Here's a sermon that reaches every linguistic background, every country, every nation. He says, there's no speech or language where the voice of nature cannot be heard. The message is clear that the heavens preach, they declare the glory of God. Nature preaches a sermon. How can we go out and look at the starry heavens, or a beautiful sunrise, or sunset, or mighty power of the ocean how can we look at the grandeur of nature and the if you please the detail of it without coming to the conclusion that the god who made it all is a great majestic powerful wise god nature preaches a sermon and those who don't get that message are just not listening They're refusing to hear. That's what Romans 1 teaches us. They suppress that knowledge. They hide it. They try to bury it. They don't want to be brought face to face with the idea that there's a God. Psalm 19 verses 1 through 6 has to do with nature's sermon. Verses 7 to 14 in that chapter has to do with special revelation. Now, natural revelation is God revealing himself in nature. But you see, God has also revealed himself in Scripture. As verse 7 of Psalm 19 says, The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is pure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, enlightening the eyes. The judgments of the Lord are true. Over and over he talks about the word of God. God reveals himself visually in nature. He reveals himself verbally in scripture. And in terms of special revelation, God has spoken In olden times, our text says, by the prophets, God who at sundry times and in divers manners, God who at different times and in various ways spoke in times past unto the fathers, unto our ancestors, by the prophets. You see, here's the mediator. God has communicated to man, he says, in the olden times by the prophets, and he did it in many different ways and at many different times. Sometimes he spoke audibly. There are occasions in the Old Testament where God communicated with an audible voice. I do know that there were times in the Bible when God spoke directly to people audibly. They heard a voice from heaven. Much of the time he spoke to them in dreams and visions. He would come to his prophets and give them a message through some mystical kind of experience. And then he would tell those prophets to go speak that message to the people you see they were the middleman God gave them the message now it's their responsibility to say thus saith the Lord and that formula gave people reason to sit up and take notice because God is speaking now, there's a verse in Psalm 50 I've always loved it says the mighty God hath spoken every time I read that verse I think of that scene in the Wizard of Oz 
when the little man behind the curtain, do you remember, was controlling the narrative and he said, the mighty Oz has spoken. And then Toto pulls the curtain back and the mighty Oz turns out to be less than stellar and spectacular, you know. (laughs) Well, I'm telling you when it says the mighty God hath spoken, you're not going to be disappointed by what you discover like we were in the Wizard of Oz because he lives up to his billing. He is indeed as mighty and powerful and majestic as we might have anticipated. When God speaks, people should listen. And God spoke to the fathers through these mediators, the prophets. And the prophets were given that message in different ways and at different times, sometimes by audible, an audible voice, sometimes by dreams, sometimes by visions. The point is God used proxies to reveal his will and his truth to the people. But now, verse 2 says, he hath in these last days. Notice how the apostle describes the day in which we're living. Since Jesus Christ has come, we are living in the last days. This is the last dispensation of history. Will the world continue for another million years, two million years? Will there be other ages of time? I, I don't know how long it will continue, but I do know that we're at the last, we're in the last segment. From Christ to the second coming, between the two comings of Jesus, the first coming and the second coming when he comes without sin unto salvation, that's the last age of time. You and I are living in the last days. This world is winding down. And it won't be long, I don't know exactly how long, for no man knows the day nor the hour, not the angels in heaven. But we know that we are living in the last segment of human history. Christ has come. The Messiah has made his appearance. The church is here, and we are waiting the second coming. And the second coming will be the final grand event, the epical event that will wrap it all up. 1 Corinthians 15 says, When Jesus comes again, then cometh the end. When he shall have delivered up the kingdom to God, even the Father, and shall have put down all rule and authority under his feet. When Jesus comes again, it will be all she wrote. That will be the end of time as we know it. You say, Brother Goins, that scares me. It shouldn't scare you if you understand there is a world wherein dwelleth righteousness, which is more of a paradise than the Garden of Eden ever was, where all the redeemed from all ages will gather around that dazzling throne, singing hallelujahs to the Lamb, enjoying perfect fellowship without anything to mar the joy or the peace of that happy world. Those who've died and gone on are already there in spirit and in soul. Their bodies are not there. But one day Jesus will return and resurrect the bodies from the grave and glorify the bodies and reunite them with the disembodied souls and spirits so that our whole spirit and soul and body will be blameless at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Then the devil and his angels and all the wicked dead will be cast into the lake of fire which burneth with fire and brimstone forevermore. And the righteous will be on the right hand of God. The sheep will be gathered into that kingdom that was prepared for them from the foundation of the world, never to part again. You say, what will we do in heaven? I don't know, but it will be exciting. It will be adventurous. It will be wonderful. I don't think we'll all rock forever and 
knit and talk about the good times we had on earth. My beloved, you will be spellbound, mesmerized. It will be breathtaking in its beauty and its glory. It will never grow old and you will never grow old. What a day that will be. How beautiful heaven must be. Oh, indeed, my beloved, I'm looking forward to it. It grows sweeter to me as time passes, doesn't it, you? Now, there's a part of me that doesn't really understand it all and that is just a little bit fearful. And, you know, this is what I'm familiar with. But I know what it means to be lifted up in the Spirit of God. I've been blessed before to feel the presence of God so strong on my soul. And I'm just telling you, heaven will be that raised to the 100th degree. It will be that multiplied exponentially. The joys, the greatest joy and peace and pleasure and happiness that you've ever had in this world will be multiplied exponentially in heaven. I almost feel like I could preach sometimes. <laughs> My beloved, in terms of God's special revelation in Scripture, it tells us things that the revelation in nature will never tell us. I never learn about the doctrine of the incarnation, the virgin birth, the two natures of Christ, the fact that he took my place as my substitute on the cross and suffered the wrath of God and the indignities of men in my place. I never learned that from looking at the rocks and the rills, the rivers and the trees. That message comes through the word, comes through special revelation, not general or natural revelation. God has spoken in many different ways and at various times, but he hath in these last days, since Jesus came, spoken unto us by his Son. And this is the ultimate revelation. God has revealed himself and he's revealed his plan of the ages. He's revealed his will for our lives. Everything we need to know, my beloved that pertains to life and godliness, has been given to us through the revelation, the record that he's given us of his Son in Holy Scripture. Jesus Christ, in other words, is not a proxy, a second-handed mediator. This is first-person testimony. God spoke by his Son. In other words, if I were to send one of you to tell the neighbor some message I had for them, you are my representative, you're my proxy. But if I were to go myself to deliver the message, you see, that's, that's even better. You, that's even more trustworthy, right? God sent prophets to speak for him, but now he says, I'll just send my son who'll speak finally and fully. You've heard the old saying, if you, if you want something done right, you better do it what? Yourself. Well, the prophets, even though what they spoke was uh, divinely inspired, yet may I say that they only had their knowledge second-handedly. But Jesus Christ has first-hand knowledge of who God is. For He is God. He has first-hand knowledge of the everlasting covenant made before the foundation of the world, what it involves, what it requires, what it will culminate in, because He made the covenant. You see, God has spoken Himself. Jesus is not a lesser God. He's not a demigod. He's not a lower form of God. By the way, did you know that many cults and non-Christian religions say, yes, we believe Jesus is a God, but he's not the true God. He's not God himself. He's just a subordinate God. He's not a fully fledged God, but he's just a little bit lower than God is. 
He's the highest of the created beings, but he's not really God himself. I'm telling you, the writer to the Hebrews says, he's spoken by his son, who being the brightness of God's glory. The language he uses here describes Jesus as God himself. And I'll, if I'm not careful, I'll preach next Sunday's sermon right now. But the point that I am driving at is that Jesus is God himself. Regardless of what the cults may say, and Jesus is God's prophet. You know, in the 18th chapter of Deuteronomy in the Old Testament, Moses said, a prophet God will send to you, capital P, like unto me, him shall ye hear. He will speak God's truth. That capital P prophet, the Jews were looking for. You read in John chapter 6, verse 14, when Jesus performed the miracle of the loaves and fishes. You remember the story? He'd multiplied the few loaves and fish to feed 5,000. The people said of a truth, this is that prophet that should come into the world. The Jews were looking for the fulfillment of that prophecy from Deuteronomy 18, 18. John 7, verse 40. When Jesus stood up, the great day of the feast, when he stood up and said, if any man thirst, let him come to me and drink. For out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. The people said, this is that prophet that we've been expecting. They've been looking for a prophet. Jesus was indeed the prophet like unto Moses, the mediator who would speak God's truth. And my friends, I say, never a man spake like this man. Muhammad did not die for you. The Buddha is not the brightness of God's glory. Confucius does not sit at the right hand of the majesty on high. Jesus Christ is the prophet, not just a prophet among many, but he is the ultimate truth teller, the ultimate revealer of God. John 1.18 says, No man hath seen God at any time, but the only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. That is, he hath exegeted him. He hath exposed him. He has explained him. He has revealed God fully and finally. God has spoken to us by his Son. I love that expression in the 17th chapter of John's Gospel when Jesus says, Father, I have manifested thy name unto the men which thou gavest me out of the world. That is, Lord, I've taken the covering off. I've manifested, I've revealed who you truly are. You know, people might say, I like to think about God as this. Somebody else says, well, this is my perspective on it. And someone else says, well, you ought to listen to so-and-so's opinion. I'm telling you, all perspectives, opinions, ideas are moot when we consider that God has already told us what he's like through Jesus Christ, who is the ultimate revealer of God. You say, well, where can I find what Jesus said about God? Right here. For the Bible, the New Testament, is the record that God has given to us of his son. First John chapter 5 uses that expression. It is the inspired record. Now, the fact that God spoke in olden times is an argument for the inspiration of the Old Testament. But the fact that he spoke once and for all by his son is an argument for the inspiration of the New Testament and the completion of the canon of the Bible. That is, the Bible is both Old Testament and New. 66 books, it's all given by divine inspiration, and Jesus Christ is the culmination. Whatever you read in the Old Testament is building up like rising action to the crescendo of God's revelation in Christ. It's all about his plan to redeem his people through the blood of his Son. That's why Jesus is called the Word 
of God in John chapter 1. You ever notice that title? John 1, 1, in the beginning was the capital W-O-R-D, the Word. And the Word was with God and the Word was God. What is a Word? Have you ever thought about it? It's a vehicle of communication. You explain what is in your heart. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaketh. So whatever you're thinking and feeling, you verbalize it in words and communicate the idea to somebody else. They process it and they understand and you have fellowship with each other. I'm telling you, Jesus is God's word. You say, well, I thought the Bible was God's word. It is secondly, but Jesus is God's living word. God speaks to us in the life and the ministry and the person of Jesus Christ. He is the Alpha and the Omega. By the way, that's the first letter of the Greek alphabet. Omega is the last letter. Jesus Christ is the alphabet. You know where we get that English word alphabet? From the first two letters, Alpha, Beta, there you go, Gamma, Delta, Epsilon, you know, alpha, beta, alphabet. So Jesus is both the first letter and the last. From A to Z, Jesus Christ is the prophet. God has spoken to us. God has spoken. My beloved, I'm interested in these people that give motivational talks, you know. I'm interested in the pundits' ideas. I listen to a lot of different people giving speeches. I like TED Talks. I like, you know, people that give seminars and are experts in their field. I, I, I listen to all of these folks that I can and try to screen what's true and what's not. I'm interested in people who are knowledgeable about their subject, but I'm telling you that Jesus Christ is the ultimate wisdom of God. You want wisdom? You won't find it in the Buddha, in the caves of the Middle East, in some sage or prophet. You won't find it in Taoism or Shintoism or the great philosophers like Plato and Nietzsche and Sartre and Kierkegaard. Do you know where you'll find the ultimate wisdom? Jesus Christ is our wisdom. He's our righteousness. He's our prophet. He's our priest. Not only our prophet, he's our priest. For he purged our sins. It says in verse number three, and he's our king. For after he purged our sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. You know, the Old Testament priest offered sacrifice for purification and cleansing from sin. Anytime somebody had leprosy, they had to be purified. An offering had to be made to cleanse them, if you please, from their sins. We all are familiar, aren't we, with the uh, idea of cleaning away dirt, cleansing. You have a wound, somebody, the nurse says, I need to cleanse it. If your dishes have been used, they need to be cleansed before they can be used again. So you put them in the dishwasher. We're all familiar with the idea of purification, right? Fire purifies. Water purifies. What is the most powerful purifying agent in the world? The blood of Jesus Christ. What can wash away your sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. My beloved, it's better than Tide or gain or any of the detergents. It's better than liquid soap. The blood of Jesus Christ can cleanse a Mary or Manasseh's stains. Our sins more vile than they. After he had by himself purged our sins. He's our priest. He's our prophet. He's our priest who purged, who purified our sins. In other words, purgation, purging, purgation 
does not happen in purgatory, but it happens at Calvary. Where were your sins purged? Not in purgatory, but on the cross of Calvary. Jesus has once and for all purged our sins. You see, in purgatory, somebody says, over time, through enough you know, contributions, you can, over time, atone for sin. I'm telling you, Jesus by himself has already done that once and for all. He's purified us from our sins once and for all on the cross by that miracle cleansing agent, the blood of Christ. That's why Revelation 1 verse 5 says, unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood on the cross. 1 Corinthians 6 11 says, you were fornicators, you were idolaters, such were some of you, but you are washed. You are sanctified, you are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Doesn't it feel wonderful to know I've been cleaned up? You are clean. If you're a child of God today, if He loved you and Christ died for you, my friends, and the Holy Spirit has called you, may I say you've been washed with the washing of regeneration. You've been cleansed in the precious blood of the Lamb. And all of your sinful stains have been cleaned and washed away, and now you are whiter than the driven snow in the sight of God. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be white like wool. When you put the red blood of Christ on the crimson stains of our sins, when God sees red on red, he sees white. If I were to look at something red through red glasses, I would only see red. But when God sees your red sins through the red blood of Christ, he sees you as cleaner than the whitest snow, than any fuller on earth could white an object. And then he's our king. For after he had purged our sins, he sat down. Now the fact that he sat down signifies the completion of the work of purification. He is now at rest after fulfilling his mission. He sat down. Jesus is not pacing the floors of heaven. And by the way, each of these thoughts is going to be developed further and more as we go through Hebrews. But Jesus Christ went home to glory and he assumed a posture of rest. Do you know why he sat down? You say, he must have been worn out. No, he sat down because he had finished the work perfectly. He'd completed the work. Jesus didn't sit down to rest because he was tired. He sat down to rest because he was finished. He came to do a work. He didn't just make a stab at it and say, well, I'll try again later. Hopefully, Brother Goins will help me get it finished. No, Jesus did it by himself. He purged our sins and he sat down. We preach a successful Savior. And he's assumed a posture of rest today because he's fulfilled his mission but I'll tell you, the posture at the right hand of God does not only indicate that he's completed the work of purification, but it indicates that he's occupied now a position of the highest honor. He's not only on a seat, in other words, he's on a throne. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He is sharing the throne with his father. This interesting thought of the right hand of the throne of God is repeated in Hebrews 8 verse 1. We have such a high priest who is set, S-E-T, on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. And it's repeated in Hebrews 12 too. We're looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. You remember that verse? Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down on the right hand of the throne of God. He's a king. He's on the throne. Who sits on the throne? The king. Jesus is our prophet. God is spoken by his son. He's our prophet. He's our priest. He has purified us. He's purged our sins by that one offering on the cross. 
And now he is seated in this position of highest honor. He's ruling on the throne. It's in this rich introduction to the letter of Hebrews that we see Jesus Christ as the final prophet of all the Old Testament prophets, the ultimate priest of all the Old Testament priests, the supreme king, and because Jesus Christ is superior to the Old Testament prophets, the Old Testament priesthood with its sacrifices, and the kings of Israel and Judah, he is then the ultimate mediator between God and men. He's God's provision of a bridge to span the gulf between heaven and earth. Jesus Christ, my friends, is supreme and the fulfillment of all of Scripture. I don't know what else to tell you except that this is a reason to worship today. I hope you understand more about what your Bible's about after listening to this. I hope you feel the need to worship. I hope you're encouraged to know what he's accomplished. And I hope your faith has been strengthened. For that's what the book of Hebrews will do for us. Yeah.